Hello, this is Media Talk USA. I'm Jeff Jarvis. On this podcast, can one website save the news? The idea is to to use the fund both to fund long-term investigations and to break quick stories that then can be developed, especially by bringing in citizen journalists. The Huffington Post says it'll bankroll investigative journalism and keep asking for money and spending it. What will the results be? Plus, while more and more titles are getting delivered to the great newsstand in the sky, is President Obama making things worse by passionately embracing new media? America, what do you want to know about the economy? Just go to whitehouse.gov and ask me. And even those benefiting can't quite believe it. And Compton. Hey, Ann. Um, you sound surprised. I am surprised. <laughs> Media Talk USA from GuardianAmerica.com and PaidContent.org. Welcome to the pilot episode of Media Talk USA, the latest offering from Guardian.co.uk's range of podcasts. We'll be producing a show every month. First, let me introduce myself. I'm Jeff Jarvis, new media columnist for Media Guardian, blogger at buzzmachine.com, author of What Would Google Do?, and a professor at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism. We're recording this podcast now in the studios of the City University of New York, just off the center of the universe, Times Square. On our first ever panel, we've gathered two of the sharpest minds in American media. Elizabeth Holmes is the digital media reporter for the Wall Street Journal, previously covering politics, reporting on the McCain side of the now long-forgotten election. Also in the studio, Jay Rosen, journalism professor at New York University, blogger at PressThink.org, and the new media analyst everyone talks about. He's into mind-casting right now. Hello, both. Hi, Jeff. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, first on the agenda, I guess this will be a recurring theme throughout future podcasts, the changing business models for news and journalism, and all the Hail Mary passes that come as a result. Before we hear from this month's interviewee, Ariana Huffington, about her new concept, let's have a look at another idea we've been hearing about recently, which is to give newspapers tax-free status in an effort to help secure their futures. Senator Benjamin Cardin, a Democrat from Maryland, is proposing the Newspaper Revitalization Act, it sounds to me like another desperate move to kind of save the past. Is making newspapers into charities going to save them? Elizabeth? You know, I'm not sure. I think the bill is interesting. They um, talk about the uh, give and take. Um, if a newspaper were to go nonprofit, what they would have to give up in exchange for that status. Um, one interesting thing is they're allowed to cover political campaigns and political issues, but not allowed to make political endorsements under the act. And um, there's been quite a bit of debate about the role of newspapers in a society and how, if newspapers choose to go this nonprofit route, how that will change. So it, in essence, takes voices out of the democratic debate. That seems rather odd. Jay, is this going to help newspapers at all, or is it just another desperate move by the old dinosaurs? Well, I don't think it's taking voices out of the debate. The endorsement part of it, I think, is relatively small. Uh, I think news organizations do need different ways of organizing themselves. And so nonprofit might be one way. But we shouldn't look at it as some sort of solution. I don't see it that way. It's just another option for how you might be able to create a sustainable business out of news. I believe that journalism has to find sustainable business models. If we don't believe there's a market demand for journalism and the market will meet it, then I'd say we're in big trouble. But I have that faith. 
And I think the Huffington Post move of announcing an effort to fund investigative journalism is a kind of passing of the torch to new players who are doing journalism for new reasons. Uh, laid off journalists will be used to coordinate stories with freelancers and produce work that will be available to any publication or website as soon as it's produced. It's very open source. Those behind the idea are worried that cutbacks in newspapers are hurting investigative journalism. Indeed, I hear people say that without newspapers, we'll have none. I've been speaking to Ariana Huffington, who founded the website less than four years ago. I started by asking her about the issue of political bias. First of all, I don't think that investigative journalism is advocacy. Um, investigative journalism is, first of all, truth-seeking. And um, we have seen how in the two biggest stories of our recent time, you know, the war in Iraq and the financial meltdown, investigative journalism um, basically did not fulfill its mission. So we all have a, a real stake, not only at preserving what investigative journalism exists, but at making it better. And what we can do online, uniquely, as you know, is um, stay with the story and stay with the story until it breaks through the static. And now, is that advocacy? I wouldn't call that advocacy. Advocacy is, for me, something different, taking a specific position and advocating for it. So what kinds of stories in the current environment are, are you want to attack first? Well, let me just give you just a random example from... Um, the last few days, so there was a story in the Wall Street Journal about the fact that since January 2005, AIG had a, a government monitor uh, because of a um, deferred prosecution agreement. They had a government monitor who's been paid $20 million. His name is James Cole, who had access to all their board meetings, to all sorts of information. What happened? What, what did he find? Where, where are these findings? And why weren't these findings um, available to prevent what happened at AIG? Now, that's someone who was during the Bush administration. If it was somebody who was uh, equally culpable during the present administration, uh, are you saying you'll go after with them. I mean, that has nothing to do whether it was the Bush administration or the Obama administration. I have written many critical things about the lack of transparency during the Obama administration. Um, I have written an extremely critical piece of Larry Summers, of Tim Geithner. So, I mean, the site has demonstrated this is not about partisanship. This is about uh, truth-seeking and um, letting the chips fall where they may. The first story that comes out will be one on the economy. How long do you think yes. that will take? You know, there are going to be shorter stories coming out pretty soon, and then longer stories, obviously... Um, will take longer. But the idea is to, to use the fund both to fund uh, long-term investigations and, uh, and to break quick stories that then can be developed, you know, the way, especially by bringing in citizen journalists. And that's why we're working with Jay Rosen, who is consulting with us to help us um, bring in the best practices of citizen journalism. So that means the crowdsourced uh, larger uh, reporting than just your reporters. Exactly, exactly. So that once, let's say, um, we break a small story, then by crowdsourcing it, it can become a much bigger story. Ariana Huffington, founder of the Huffington Post there. Uh, so, Jay, you're consulting with them to work on crowdsourcing. We tend to hear 
the moaning and, and fear about the death of investigative journalism about trying to maintain it in its present form. Isn't this a new way to do investigations with a large crowd of hands? Well, we hope the fund will actually support different kinds of work. Some of it will be very traditional, meaning you're an investigative reporter, go off and, and research that story for months. Some of it will be more team-based and some of it will be quicker, publishing more in real time, and some I hope will be um, very open source. And so what I was attracted to was the possibility of creating a unique mix where we have um, old-fashioned reporting, we have pro-am reporting with investigative reporters working with engaged groups of knowledgeable people, and maybe even open source projects that um, work more like Wikipedia. And I think there's a lot of strength in a combination like that. Elizabeth, though, isn't this perhaps a sign of surrender in the search for sustainable business models for news and especially investigative journalism? You know, I have a couple questions about the project and how it will work. I mean, I think the idea of something um, of being started to um, further the investigative pursuit of journalists and of other people for the better of everybody. I, I think that's an admirable goal. I think um, that that the question here is, is who are these people that are doing it? Who are these journalists? How are they going about it? Um, the Huffington Post, I understand it's a separate legal entity from this project, but there's no escaping the reputation that the Huffington Post has and what um, their political leanings are. And um, I think it'll be interesting to watch going forward. I think um, investigative journalism is is a pricey and um, time-consuming pursuit, but I think it's an important thing. And if this brings to light some things, I think it'll take a couple real home runs to um, to get people to notice and pay attention. I also think that the weight of, of a publication behind you often fuels investigative journalism. If you understand that you're a Wall Street Journal reporter and you're going to find something people that, that there's a trade of information there that I think kind of stands behind the publication. And so this idea that it could be simultaneously published in um, many different papers at once is interesting. I also wonder about the competitive nature of journalism. I mean, we're all about breaking the story. And so this idea that everybody's going to have it all at once um, it, it makes it less about um, where you're reading it and more about, you know, this pursuit of the idea and what's there. And um, that will certainly change journalism if it takes That's off. one thing I love about it. Um, the old-fashioned investigative reporter who keeps everything secret until the moment that it's loosed on the world is not going to be attracted to this fund in a lot of ways because they won't necessarily be able to work that way. But that will be a sorting mechanism. And the reporters that are truly investigative, meaning they love gathering new information and breaking stories and finding out stuff that people don't know, who are also willing to work online and invite others into the process through a kind of a weeding out, we will discover, I believe, those people with the traditional skills and discipline who are interested in opening up the craft. And that's one of the things that attracts me about it.
So Ariana actually has the ambition, we can never accuse her of having a lack of ambition, to improve investigative journalism. Now, in the end, I still believe that the Washington Post and the New York Times and the Guardian and other papers will have to do investigative journalism because in a search and link economy, to stand out, you have to bring unique value, not of just commodity crap. Yeah. So then we'll have this added on. Do you think there's a chance we'll end up with more investigative journalism than the past, or will the economy bring us down to less? If we did an audit in three years, Hence, versus three years ago, will it be more or less? Oh, geez, I don't know. I, I, I was simply excited by the fact that here's $1.75 million to spend on original reporting. And hopefully next year it'll be like another $2 million or something. So, I mean, it, it, at a time when there is declining investment in news, the, this money helps. And it's being used in a different way and it'll, it'll feed a different system. I look at it as... A couple of million dollars for the internet to develop original reporting. I mean, I think there will be more reporting. More things will come out as a result of this project. But I also think that not everybody is an investigative journalist, that there's a certain kind of skill set and a certain smarts and a certain way about things. And this idea of crowdsourcing, I think it's important to have a lot of people contributing to a new form of journalism on the internet. But I'm not sure that that makes it investigative journalism. And I also think that there's a reason that we sometimes hold off on stories where you wait you learn, you think about it. And in this internet world where it's get it out, get it out, get it out, a link is more valuable than anything. Um, I think that's actually contributed to a lot of the problems around investigative journalism because you have to have that time and that patience about it sometimes for these stories to kind of develop. Well, the proof will be in the pudding. So for more on this, go to guardian.co.uk slash media. And why not take the hard work out of listening? Set up your free subscription, free, to this podcast. All the details can be found at guardian.co.uk slash mediatalkusa. Media Talk USA with Jeff Jarvis. Let's take a look at more recent media headlines from the U.S. With some of the more interesting ones, here's Ernie Sander from paidcontent.org, which is the Guardian's partner website here in the USA. Perhaps not surprisingly, Google tops the list with all kinds of things going on. Perhaps the biggest is the, the, the new deal between Disney and YouTube to put short clips on the video site. So these are clips of ESPN and ABC TV properties and, and others. The two companies, Disney and YouTube, are also reportedly discussing a long-form deal. And this is a big deal because Disney's also talking with Hulu, and both Hulu and YouTube really want, want these long-form clips. There's some overseas news with Google, too. Uh, in China... Google's expanding its music search engine, uh, has struck deals with, with all four big music labels to make its music searchable. Then there are some big industry moves uh, recently. Uh, perhaps the biggest is the decision by former head of AOL, John Miller, to become the digital head at News Corp. His biggest mission may be trying to figure out what to do with MySpace, which is sort of the marquee property. Also, important executive shuffle, the Facebook's CFO, Gideon Yu, is leaving. It's unclear if he was pushed out or is leaving on his own, but, but it's clear that Facebook needs to raise a lot more money. He's successfully raised some, but they need a lot more. In other news, the, the wedding site, The Knot, uh, is, is making a hard push for the hyper-local market. Uh, it's trying to attract small businesses as national advertising dries up, and so it's introduced 75 hyper-local sites. And then, of course, there's Twitter, which is all the rage at the moment. Everybody's Twittering. In the latest Twitter twist, celebrities like 50 Cent and Britney Spears have actually hired ghostwriters to pen their tweets. Yes, it's true. 
having a hired gun to write all of 140 characters of text. This is, of course, ironic because the whole point of Twitter is that it's so easy and so immediate that that any fool can do it. But but obviously that doesn't apply to everybody. Ernie Sander there from paidcontent.org. Now back to the studio and a quick chat about a few of these items. Jay, uh, unlike me, you actually think about your blog posts and take time to let them uh, ferment and do well and write long blog blog posts. And I made fun of you for that and thought you could never succeed in Twitter, but here you are, a well-known mindcaster. Mm -hmm. It's a blast. What does Twitter do for you? Well, Twitter allows me... um, to, first of all, um, develop a constituency for my work that is daily. Uh, I don't allow anyone to ghostwrite for me. Uh, It also edits the web for me, and it's my giant hand-built tipster network. And it is a great way to basically have people read the news for you and point out what's important. And your Twitter handle is? Rosen underscore NYU. E. Holmes, WSJ. And what do your fellow WSJers think about this insanity of you Twittering your day away? You know, Twitter is something that I think people are still figuring out. It's still so new and um, figuring out. I, I, I continue to believe that you can't just promote yourself on Twitter, that it's not something that you can just, I could always just send links to my stories because that gets boring. And so you have to add some personality. How much of that personality has been there? What people are actually interested in that I'm doing? I mean, it feels very... <laughs> Uh, narcissistic in ways that I'm not I'm not naturally inclined to and so the thought that someone would care you know that I went out to some restaurant to eat is is sort of weird but I'm embracing it I think speaking of narcissism I'll plug my book uh, only for this cause in Twitter that it's a great time to write a book because you can read people reading it through Twitter People uh, recommend it, complain about it, quote it. Uh, you have aphorisms in there, and it's really quite wonderful to see that happening kind of live. And then I shock them by responding to them and saying, oh, thank you for that. You know what I'm doing, Jeff, is I'm using it to help me blog. As I use Twitter to sort and realize what's really important, and then I can take the reactions that I've gotten on Twitter, really think about them, and craft a post that I already know is right in the center of the conversation. But a question about that is who are the people that are Twittering and how do they fit into the pie as a whole? I think that there's a slice of people that Twitter and there's a slice of people that have ideas about this kind of stuff. But I'm from the Midwest. I'm a big believer in middle America. A lot of people there, uh, older people, don't tweet in the same way that media professionals do. There's also just a slice of people who read the Wall Street Journal. Exactly. It's not a representative sample of Americans, no. When you're basing something on the Twitter, the thoughts of the Twitter community, I'm often Well, for you, that's a problem. For me, it's not a problem. The people who read my blog are on Twitter. Media Talk USA from The Guardian and Paid Content. Well, let's move on and look at the White House. We are more than 70 days into Barack Obama's presidency, and it's worth a moment to reflect on his relationship with the media so far. We have a few significant moments. Of course, he appeared on The Jay Leno Show. I wish he'd picked something more challenging like Letterman or Stewart, but fine. It was the first in-studio interview on an entertainment show such as this by a sitting president. The 44th president of the United States. Please welcome President Barack Obama. Yeah. Oh, that's very I'm good, sorry, Mr. President. This is, like, this is like Special Olympics or something. No, that, that, I mean, no that's very good. The, uh... Then the president gave his second press conference from the East Room of the White House, but bypassed the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, the Chicago Tribune, and the Wall Street Journal for questions, instead favoring some unusual suspects. Work on diligently in the months to come. Uh, Kevin Barron, Stars and Stripes. Is Kevin here? 
There you go. Mr. President, uh, where do you plan? Ann Compton. Hey, Ann. Um, you sound surprised. I am surprised. <laughs> um, could I ask you about race? So are newspapers yesterday's news? Is the internet where it's all at now? Editors from the New York Times and the Washington Post say they're not offended. Elizabeth, what about your colleagues at the Wall Street Journal? I think we were surprised. I mean, it's it's one thing for him to not call on the Wall Street Journal, which he has before many times. I mean, but to not call on any newspaper was or any major newspaper publication was really interesting. I think um, that his presidency has been shaped by his um, devotion to new media and to reaching people directly. And so it makes sense that he would, you know, pick certain outlets. I do think it's doing a disservice. As a newspaper <laughs> reporter, I think it's important. I think we serve an important role and our reporters are trained and educated and have, you know, smart questions that would, you know, demand smart answers. Jay, should he have called on more of the big old guys? I don't think it matters. I don't actually think professional journalists ask better questions than other people, especially in a situation like that. And um, I think the rituals of accountability aren't um, set in stone. They are themselves living things, and it's fine for Obama to change them around. And to be accountable to the public. On a related theme of moving away from the traditional media, Obama held a town hall meeting on the Internet. His ability to embrace the power of the web is, of course, well known. Here's the idea. Right now at WhiteHouse.gov, anyone can submit a question about the economy or vote on other questions. We're going to compile those questions and votes, and then on Thursday, I'll be giving you some answers myself. This is an experiment, but it's also an exciting opportunity for me to look at a computer and get a snapshot of what Americans across the country care about. So on the one hand, we could say that this is accountability directly to the people. But then I think we could also say that this is a very clever way to bypass big old media. And Jay, you've written in the past about the Bush White House and its many strategies to bypass media and bypass journalist questions. Is this different? Well, the entire approach of the Obama administration is different in that um, the Bush White House was trying to increase the opacity of the government all the time as well as control information, when it came to transparency, they actually issued orders. If there's any doubt whatsoever, don't release it. And that mentality was part of the Bush administration from top to bottom, from beginning to end. So that's what's really different is the Obama White House doesn't feel when in doubt, don't release it, uh, don't speak. And so I, I, I this phrase of going around the press, I think, is itself an artifact of a particular communication age when the way that you could reach the country was through these narrow gates of the mass media. But Elizabeth, you were on the McCain plane. You've covered campaigns. You've been around. Did you feel at times as if this was being outsourced? Or did you feel as if you were in a better position to ask questions than the questions that were coming from YouTube and such? When it is your job to follow someone and track their movements and their promises and their pledges, that you are more attuned to whatever um, message they are putting out and the spin involved in that. And I think that when you're submitting questions online and they're reviewed and dissected and he can have the time to put together a soundbite answer that he can present at a town hall, I mean, it, it definitely fulfills the need 
for the public to say, oh, gosh, I can ask my president a question directly, and that makes them feel good. But I'm not sure if the exchange and the message that is there is as good as it should be or as honest as it should be. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on that um, that, that the Obama camp is not going to talk about. And that and, and, and maybe as a journalist who, you know, as a job is, is studying this administration, will know questions. And it's not... It's not to put them in gotcha situations, but it's to it's to know what's really going on in a way that I, I don't think the masses do. And I, I think it's really important that people understand. I agree that there needs to be that range of questioning. But if I believed everything that came out of a McCain advisor's mouth, I mean, I, I'd be a fool. It I don't should... buy a word of that. Not a single word. Why? Um, well, I, I, I do agree that simply asking questions that are like popular among um, – voters can easily degenerate into um, puffery and public relations. So can uh, a press conference with journalists behaving as insiders. Uh, in terms of asking candidates or officials about important things in front of the country, I don't think it's necessary at all to have followed these people and to track everything that they have said. I don't think that necessarily leads to better questions what, whatsoever. And there's a lot of negative effects when reporters hang out with each other and decide together what the issues are. Lots of times the things that they're interested in had to do with maneuvering and strategy and, and, uh, and sort of the, the professionalization of politics. And I don't think our professional journalists have done a good job at all in interrogating our public officials. I, d I don't think that everyone is perfect and every question is useful in this pursuit. But I don't think that just a simple dialogue at a town hall meeting brings out the honest response of the administration. Well, we have to get away from the idea that accountability takes place magically in one setting or one ritual or one series of questions. It's actually a, an, an attitude about governing that we need to bring about I'd, I'd go farther. It's an it's an ethic of government, uh, and and Obama talks about transparency in government. We've got to get to the point where we make transparency the default. Yeah, um, that's a long process. It is, but especially as we see news organizations shrinking. Part of the advantage of having more and more data, having our entire government linkable and searchable, is we'll have more eyeballs on that, finding out what happens. Of course. But he's a politician, just like all the other politicians, and they have a, he has a message to put out. And when you have a message that is carefully crafted, and I, I agree that transparency in this administration is, is a different idea than the past administration, but I don't think that you, you just take everything that comes out of Washington. Wait a minute. Journalists are the ones who understand that politicians have message and are trying to sell us? You're a professional. You dwell in this space. This is not something that So the that masses the people, are fooled by this, no, but I'm the not, professionals don't? No, I'm not. I'm not <laughs> saying that the masses are foolish. I'm saying that the press serves a role. I'm a journalist because I think I have a purpose here. I think I know more about the topic that I cover than the average person, and that's my job. But these new tools also allow you to have a different relationship with that public. And and we can joke about Twitter, but in fact, whether it's Twitter or blogs or other means, you have new ways to see what people care about, and it may not be what always what we in the professional press think the people care about. And we have new means to listen. So whether it's Obama answering the questions of the public directly or us having new ways to listen to the public, I think that leads to better discussion. And our discussion comes to an end. It will continue online in the Facebook group. You can post a comment on our wall there or leave your thoughts on the blog at guardian.co.uk slash mediatalkusa. Thanks to my panel here in the studios at CUNY. 
New York University journalism professor Jay Rosen, and Elizabeth Holmes, digital media reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Go to guardian.co.uk slash mediatalkusa to subscribe to the podcast for free, of course. Plus, you can join our Facebook group and Twitter feed at Media Talk USA. That's where you can also leave your feedback, and I suppose if it's any good, they might just let us do this again. This program was produced by Andy Duckworth. I'm Jeff Jarvis. Thank you for listening. Media Talk USA from The Guardian and Paid Content.